You are listening to A Healthy Obsession, the podcast covering soccer culture from around the world. My name is Adam Thurwell, and the show is brought to you by Small Goal Soccer. Today, my guest on the show is Jordan Florit. Jordan has just written a book called Red Wine and Arepas. It is a book about how football is becoming Venezuela's religion. We're going to be talking about everything to do with the book, including Jordan's trip to Venezuela. We're going to be talking about the politics of the country, the football, of course, and the culture that makes up this very, very fascinating place thank you to everyone for tuning in we're going to get into the show now make sure to get with us on the web at a healthy obsession.soccer for everything that's going on in the world of football culture I try to think of a good place to start. Usually I've been doing a lot of these with all kinds of different people. And usually these are really like a, a quite an easy starting point. Like, how did you start? How did you get into this? And I'm like reading through the notes I took from the book. And I thought there's, there's just so much going on. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely insane. I, I, I finished the book and I thought that would be a good fictional story, let alone like a, an actual story that you've oh, gone through. You <laughs> it's, it's mental. All right, so uh, we'll start by one of the biggest like things here in the States is there's a lot of heavy sort of, um, I don't know, propaganda might be a little heavy of a word, but about Venezuela, there's all you yeah, know, yeah. in the media and there's, there's so much different, uh, so many different stories that come out of that that I don't think anyone really has a, a proper idea of what Venezuela is like and is about you having written this book and been there firsthand I wanted to kick off by just kind of getting an idea of what are some of the most common misconceptions people might have about Venezuela that are listening that maybe don't know much too too much about the country yeah so um it's it's there's a really fine line um and like propaganda is like people give that word a lot of weight um Mm. And it's getting thrown around a lot just in general at the moment in politics and in America, in, in the UK, um, you know, with, with Trump and with Brexit and even in now in Spain as well. Um, but obviously, like the words, the words being used for, uh, in Venezuela for a while. Um, and there's a very fine line between um, like misconceptions um, and like half truths uh, with Venezuela. Um, so one like very recent example, uh, there was a tweet um i an influencer i can't remember her name nobody i've come across before um but she like tweeted earlier this week about how um her uber driver was from venezuela and she got talking to him and uh he said like um families like live on like um uh like a dollar a month mm-hmm. um it was something like that it was i can't remember word for word but it was along those lines and um you know that gets like tens of in possibly a hundred thousand likes and retweets um and it's dangerous for two reasons um firstly it's dangerous because it's it's not true but it's close to the truth Mm. um and and secondly it's dangerous because venezuelans themselves inside and outside of the country also like and retweet it which then lends it credibility Mm. and that's dangerous because it's easy for somebody who thinks Venezuela is like a paradise uh, because there's, there's people that think Venezuela is like a socialist paradise. And, um, you know, every uh, bad thing that's said about Venezuela is just uh, a slur and it's because they, they hate communism or they hate socialism or, 
Um, and then there's there's people that think Venezuela is like hell on earth. Um, and that's the problem. Like there's there's two very passionate extremes um, on an argument. And obviously the reality is is somewhere in between. And I don't mean it's down the middle. Like there are definitely a lot of things um, there's definitely more things wrong with Venezuela than there are right. Like I'm, I don't wish to be misunderstood on that at all. Um, like the, the situation in Venezuela is severe and it's bad. Um, who to blame uh, for that? Everyone has an opinion on it, but though that, that is a common misconception, the amount of money that people earn, like 95% of people in Venezuela live in poverty um, and like extreme poverty, not like poverty that um, people in the UK would call poverty, like, essentially third world poverty um but things like entire families living on one dollar um like a week or one dollar a month isn't true um like in 2017 it was it got really bad and it was potentially nearly as bad as that but like not now um and the reason why that gets dangerous is because it it then means people look down on venezuela and undervalue venezuelans and they get taken advantage of for that reason. One of my friends, Kevin, who features heavily in the book, as you know, mm, yeah, he, um, he should probably be he, your best. He should probably be your best mate after like everything you two went through together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it was his birthday today, actually, and I, you know, I said like he's the best long distance friend anyone could have. Um, but yeah, he he saw this tweet and he like retweeted it and and said like you know this is dangerous and he was telling me about it as well. Um, and it's, it's, it's dangerous. It's dangerous because it's believable um, mm. because things have been that bad before and things are bad now. I'm not playing down the situation in the slightest. It's terrible. And it's got worse since I was there in November, October, November last year because of the pandemic. Um, but another reason why it's dangerous is because it's then easy to disprove that that's not the case. Mm. And that is dangerous because then somebody can say, no, that's wrong and prove that it's not wrong and then they can use the fact that that person has said something wrong to then defend the government <laughs> so they're not doing themselves any favors like when they say this they they are saying it to attack the government which is fine but it actually like discredits their their stance because it's actually factually incorrect which is dangerous because you don't they don't need to make that mistake in the first place by massively exaggerating it nobody is being helped um like venezuelans are being devalued uh, you, it also makes it easy to um, take the side of the government if that's the way a person is inclined. So yeah, it's really not helpful. So one of the biggest, one of the biggest um, misconceptions, um, I, I don't want to say one of the biggest misconceptions is everyone in Venezuela is really poor because so many people statistically are very poor. Mm. Um, but like that isn't the only side to Venezuela. Um, yeah, and that's and that's certainly the the picture that gets painted up here in the states, right? So we're we're based in the US, and and that is very much the the picture and the story that you mentioned about people living on a dollar a day. Do you, I think you mentioned in you would spend some time in Cuba, maybe it's just a holiday. Do you see sort of um, a comparison with Venezuela, not only from a political standpoint, but getting kind of tarnished with that brush that everyone lives? Uh, like in poverty and there's a narrative around both of those countries and it seems perhaps ironic that both of those countries have similar political systems without going down the, the rabbit hole too much of yeah. what's right and wrong as you said but do you, do you think that there's a, a similarity there between the two getting tarnished with the, uh, the brush that both are just poor countries and that's just the way it is? 
there's definitely a similarity that they both get tarnished there. Mm. Um, I, I'll start before I, I say what the first-hand differences I saw were by caveating that I was in Venezuela to, to write the book um, and I spent a lot of time in like the football world, but I also used all my free time to uh, try and experience as much like everyday life as possible, like to the detriment of sleep. Um, like I came home ruined from my time in Venezuela. Um, whereas I was in Cuba um, for a honeymoon, but I didn't just go to like a five-star all-inclusive hotel and just stay there for, for 18 days. Like we traveled one side of the island, um, obviously, albeit still in um, like holiday mode. Um, but yeah, the, the similarities are that they get tarnished with the same brush. The, the, the difference I'd say is in Venezuela, like you could see rich and poor living alongside each other, like everywhere mm -hmm. in Cuba, like everyone was poor by Western standards. Like I don't remember seeing many rich people, um, right. Many rich local Cubans. Um, I'm not saying that there aren't, but like every, everyone in Cuba was like, there was an equality um and the when we did see like rich cubans and when we did see like wealthy people in general um in cuba like they were in their like own neighborhoods mm. um and obviously there are gated communities in venezuela and like i drove past some of them um and like i was showing them when i was naturally driving past some but like there was there was definitely a difference in cuba and venezuela it wasn't at all like being in the same country um and that i know some people think that's how it would be uh, and then also uh, speaking to venezuelans when i was in there like a lot of them um fear becoming cuba um like even now with the situation in venezuela as it is at the moment it's probably other than 2017 uh, like 2017 is probably the worst venezuela's been post 2000 um and like when I was there last year, there were Venezuelans still saying like, we don't want to become another Cuba. Uh, so I think Venezuelans certainly, a lot of Venezuelans certainly feel it's different. I know a lot of Venezuelans that have left Venezuela, um, see Venezuela and Cuba um, as, as very similar. And that was another really interesting thing. Like when I, um, like I speak to Venezuelans all day, every day now, like I was only saying today that like my family are probably the only English people I speak to on a daily basis. Everyone else is Venezuelan. Um, and like they've uh, said, like um, I've lost my trade of thought. <laughs> um, I can't remember what I was going to say. Sorry, it's gone. Yeah, no, it's all good. You were saying you were saying about uh, like you speaking to more Venezuelans and and I like oh yeah yeah. So quite a quite a lot of my Venezuelan friends are like they get quite angry with some Venezuelans that have have left Venezuela because. Mm. Um, they say like things are different since 2017. Things are still bad and they still want help. And they like the majority of the Venezuelans I know don't want the current government, mm. um, but they still get very annoyed and upset when Venezuelans that have left the country um, are telling everyone that Venezuela is still as bad as it was in 2017, because it doesn't help their situation by doing that. Going back to like the money situation, like it, the, the, the inflation is crazy to keep up with. Like on the day, I arrived in Venezuela, like it was 18,000 Bolivars to the dollar. Um, I think in the 18 days um, that I was there, it peaked at like 36,000. So like the inflation doubled whilst I was there and then it dropped back down to 24. Like it fluctuates on a daily basis. And, I'm, and I know that since I, I left, it's gone up tenfold again and then dropped. Like it, it's impossible to keep up with. But like, yeah, um, there, there's 
there's definitely like a a lot of Venezuelans in Venezuela are like sort of fed up of being judged by Venezuelans that have left in recent years. And I can't, I can't remember who the quote was from, but it, it was along the lines of like, to flee is not freedom. And it was someone being critical of people leaving the country because they, I think they see it as a, a patriotic duty to stay and kind of fight the good fight and make the country prosperous again. And to run and leave the country is... I think cowardly is probably a little like harsh of a word, but like that's kind of how it was framed that just because you're leaving doesn't mean that you're free and the problems are still here. And I, I could understand why taking criticism from someone that's left and fled the country is probably doesn't sit very well with, with you who's there in the trenches, so to speak, trying to make things right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It was really interesting. Like I remember that was just like a WhatsApp status and like, you know, like I don't, I don't even know what my WhatsApp status is, but normally like they're just tidbits. They're just stupid inanities and um, I remember seeing like I remember the guy you're talking about is his name's Jose he's an Aragua fan I, I, I met him and I spent um spent a few hours with him um and I you know I wish I, I wish it was more because he's a nice guy and I spent you know hundreds of hours speaking to him over the past year um but yeah I found that really touching to to see that status like it was it was very poignant it made me think a lot like six words or whatever and it, it had me thinking a lot and you know he's a he's a guy that works really hard and has like a lot of ambitions but yeah to him to him leaving just isn't the answer and i know for a lot of people like it they leave out of absolute necessity mm-hmm. um what i found quite interesting was the amount of people who could leave um and choose to stay um particularly like footballers that earned well um, during their playing days, like not household, not international names, but household names. Um, and, you know, they don't need to be in Venezuela at all, but they choose to stay. And um, that, to me, again, without downplaying the situation, because that's really not what I, I want to do and definitely isn't what the book does for anyone that's read it or, or is going to read it. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, isn't, it isn't a country full of 30 million people that want to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that can that is when this is why propaganda is not helpful from like you can't you can't for me you can't and this is for me that I am I will give a, an opinion on this for me you can't slam um, you know the the far left or socialism or communism whatever you label it mm-hmm. as being like propagandistic and then spread your own propaganda because there is no like propaganda is propaganda you can't fight propaganda with propaganda and then say Oh, that's propaganda, and that is that's one of the things that I think um, is wrong with the debate on Venezuela. Like, there is a very legitimate debate there that needs to happen and needs to happen correctly because nobody is going to be helped just from this propaganda. And so that's why, with the book, I was I was very keen to tell the stories of um, you know Venezuelans that that could leave tomorrow if they wanted to and live a very nice life in in Europe or another South American country or the US, but choose to stay. And similarly with the second chapter of the book, Los Extranjeros, um, that chapter focuses on um, players from outside of Venezuela that have chosen to have a career inside Venezuela. Because again, everyone thinks of people leaving Venezuela. Nobody thinks of somebody going to Venezuela to make their life. Yeah. Um, the examples are a couple of Ghanaian players, I think, right? And one, uh, one was very young, like he had just moved there, and I think COVID hit. <laughs> Poor guy got yeah. like, 
start right at the worst time to move for that's great to see the players like like you said it's it, people probably don't think of it being an attraction for foreigners to move into Venezuela to play football, but it's there, isn't it? Like it's in the book. There's many examples of players moving from not only Latin America, but as I just mentioned, Africa to go and apply their trade in Venezuela. Yeah. Yeah. The numbers aren't huge. It's, mm. I think there's just 40 odd. Um, mm. But, you know, that's 40 disproving a theory that everyone um, wants to leave and no one wants to go. Um, yeah, there are two Ghanaians, like you said, there's one, one European um, and then, yeah, a handful of South Americans. Um, it, it's, a, it's a curiosity that the two Africans are both from, from Ghana um, mm. and about 10, 11 years apart in age. Um, but yeah, there's, there's separately, there's quite a strong uh, history of Ghanaian players playing in, in Venezuela. Um, I can't put my finger on a particular reason for it, but yeah, it was curious. And there's there's a, a big number of people going the other way, right? So the export number of Venezuelans going out of the country to play football is through the roof right now. I'm just here in MLS where we lived as uh, an abundance of Venezuelan players playing their trade in the States. So I think one of the things that stood out to me the most was on the men's and the women's side is players are leaving and their families, the families become so separated. And this might just be not just footballers, but football is obviously an example of the book. But it was remarkable to see that players leave and they're sending money home. Uh, the, the female player, you have to pronounce it, Danuska. Danuska. Yeah, so I mean, her example was like, she's in Porto making money and everything's going back home to, I think some of her family were in Chile, some of her family was still in Venezuela. And it's like, that must be very difficult for players to leave a country that is going through a hard time to like go on and focus and have this be your professional career and still have to send money home and support a family. It's kind of, uh, I noticed there was a lot of disjointed families, whether that was because of football or not. Yeah, yeah, and D- Danny Uska's story was, um, it's a very human story. Mm. Uh, a lot of the people that have read the book and spoken to me about it since, um, be it friends, family, strangers on Twitter, um, a lot of them say that Danny Uska's chapter is one of their favourite um, chapters yeah, in the book. And I think the reason for that is because even though, um, like, my reality, your reality, uh, you know, the vast majority of the people that read the book are going to have a completely different reality to her. But, like, there's lots in there that you can relate to um, because, you know, often we think of humans as being from, uh, sorry, we think of football as being from, like, a, a different world, like, living in a different universe because of the money. Yeah. But, like, here, here's Daniuska um, moving to Portugal before she's even 20, like we see her as a professional footballer, but then actually her her problems um, are basic things like she doesn't have a bank account. Um, so she has to, you know, cash her paycheck every month and then send, um, you know, pay physical cash into somewhere like Western Union to then send back home to Venezuela and, mm-hmm. you know, little things like that. You don't think footballers, when you think about footballers, you don't think of them like bothering themselves with little things like not having a bank account for a year um, because because of her her status in the country and she has family across South America to to send money to and mm-hmm. it is it's a very human story and her struggle when she was um, a teenager and like losing her dad at such a young age relocating mm-hmm. across the country like there's there is something there for everyone to relate to be it like you know coming from uh, I don't like the phrase coming from a broken home, but like mm-hmm. coming from a broken home, like my parents separated when I was um, 
young. Her mm. parents separated, but then she had the added um, drama, trauma, tragedy of her father being murdered. Then she had physical relocation across the country. Um, then she had her mum working lots of hours and not seeing her much. Um, like, even though she's in Venezuela and a reader could be in England, like some lots of people have parents that have separated lots of people have lost somebody at a young age lots of people have that um that psychological toil of relocating countries or relocating across your own country um and that's that's what people can relate to but then alongside this she was representing her country winning the south american championship finishing third in the puskas award for goal of the year also while all whilst living in in what she described as a shed uh, it, it was it was the remarkable story, and she's still only you know twenty at the very beginning of her career. Um, just started a new season with Braga, um, and yeah, she's just she's such a lovely girl. And this uh, is a domestic issue as well for professional footballers. Like you, you've without being too much of a spoiler, you, you gave many examples in the book of um, a, a professional football team's coach being attacked on the way to a game, power going out in stadiums and they're living out of hotels. So it's a very unusual situation for what most would consider uh, for, for a professional athlete normal, which they're, they're not living that down there, but they, they, they still make it, they still make do and make it as treat it as professionally as they can, but they're under these remarkable circumstances. It's, it's insane almost to read some of those stories. Yeah, and the, the the timing of me finishing the book, um, I, I remember when I was getting down into the final weeks, um, saying to like my wife or my dad or the people who who knew that I was close to finishing, like, ah, oh, something else has just happened. Like, I can't leave this out, or mm-hmm. you know, this, I, oh, I'm done, and then something else would happen, and it got to the point where I just I had to, I, I had to like put the pen down and stop, because uh, yeah, I. I I f- was finishing the book as the pandemic really started to get a hold. Mm. Um, and what's, what's happened in Venezuelan football since I finished the book is, is worthy of, you know, easily three or four chapters um, in, in a second book, for example, like you've had um, entire squads unpaid all year. Um, whole professional football teams not playing uh not paying their staff not communicating with their players um using uh the pandemic as an excuse and it's it's beyond contempt because the like you say these are professional footballers and there's just no professionality to some of um the relationships some of the teams um and it that's happened in men's and women's football then you've had the the death of the Venezuelan Football Federation president at the beginning of August. He died under police in whilst under police custody. Nice. Um, it, it is it is literally a, a, an American soap drama, but it's it's real life and it has terrible terrible consequences for the people involved. And now the Venezuelan Football Federation has been um, placed under uh, a FIFA committee, normalisation committee, mm-hmm. um, and they are overseeing the federations day to day until uh, a new elections are held which will, will happen in next year but again that's got his own sub story normally there would be at least two uh, foreigners on a fifa normalization committee but because of the pandemic um all five members of the normalization committee are venezuelans 
And uh, I think four of the five have held roles in the FEF in recent years. The guy overseeing the committee is the last Venezuelan Football Federation president prior to the one that died. So, yeah, so there would normally be at least two foreigners on a, on a normalisation committee. Okay. So in recent years, Trinidad and Tobago, um, Nigeria, Egypt, um, these are all countries that have, I think Pakistan as well, these are all countries that have been placed under a normalisation committee. Mm. Um, and there would normally be at least two foreigners, and there isn't because of the pandemic, all five are Venezuelan, four of the five have had a position in the federation in recent years, mm. with the main guy overseeing the committee being the last federation president prior to um, Jesus Baradanelli, who died at the beginning of August. Um, the only plus side for a lot of uh, people that see this as you know, the same thing, but in different clothes, is that none of them can stand in the fresh elections that will happen next year. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say there's a massive conflict of interest by the sounds of it, if uh, if that's the case with the normalisation committee, right? Yeah, um, that's that's what some people uh, are worried about. Um, it's, it's difficult because the guy that's overseeing the committee, Loriano Gonzalez, as well as being the former Venezuelan president, he only temporarily resigned in January and then he made that official I think in March okay. um, and then you know by by the end of August he's back um, albeit in a different role but now again running the FVF just as a FIFA member he's also the vice president of Commable which is um, you know South America's footballing body right. um, so yeah it, it, it's difficult and the worst thing about it is you know today Venezuela start their World Cup qualifying campaign um, with an away tie against Colombia, um, it's arguably the best chance that they've ever had to qualify for a World Cup, and it's it's all being overshadowed by the off off the field side of um of football. Well, and it, globally, football and politics always intersects, right? And it ever more so in Venezuela. Right? It seemed like everything that was going on, there's politics tying in with football. So domestically, a lot of the clubs are also ran by. Or maybe sponsored by either state organizations and also the president of a lot of these clubs are also, they have a history or they're somewhere involved in politics. Did you see that as a, uh, also a bit of a conflict of interest and is, is there much in the way of corruption around those type of things? Or did you see um, people trying to do the right thing or is that a little bit too naive, maybe too idealistic? Um, I, there was definitely, I personally think there was definitely a mix. Um, like, it would be incredibly naive to say that there wasn't corruption there. Mm. Um, but also it, I think it would be, um, I think it would be unfair to tarnish everyone with the same brush. Of course, like you can't, um, you know, you, you can't be in a position of political power in a particular state and also be involved in the running of that, football club without there being conflicts of interest that's just inherent whether you take advantage of either position to benefit the other one is a separate matter um and whether you're doing that for your own gain or whether you're doing that for for the benefit of the football club uh, again people have different views on that but that's that's um that's not new in venezuelan football mm. uh, that that it's it's happened for you know the past 20 years but also there's cases of a conflict of interest going back to like the 70s there's not much detail about it but in the qualification for world cup 1974 uh, venezuela were actually expelled from fifa for um a conflict of interests 
um, and the falling out between the Federation and the League, which led FIFA to believe that Venezuela's participation in qualification was so uh, tentative that they didn't want to they didn't want to risk fixtures being unfulfilled or whatever and just expelled Venezuela. So like football and politics around the world is, is a tale as old as the sport. For sure. Uh, and one, uh, one person you met more so than others was uh, Hugo Chavez's brother, who's the president of a club there. What was that like? I read that, I read that chapter and sort of constantly thought of like what that conversation might be like because he kept trying to I don't think you uh mentioned politics too much which must have been kind of difficult with him being the brother of Hugo Chavez so what was that conversation like how did you feel going into that conversation so going into it I was like um right up until the last minute never really sure whether it was going to happen or not Mm. he was very very friendly to me when I reached out about talking to him um, I think it would have been silly not to have spoken to him because, you know, the the book touches on politics. Well, more than touches on politics. It's not a political book. Like, its aims aren't political. Mm-hmm. But, like, it, it talks about football's importance in society, how it overlaps and involves itself with politics and vice versa. Um, and when you've got the president, the, the former president's brother, uh, as a president of a football club and also on the organisation committee for when they hosted Copa America in 2007. Like, it was an opportunity that I wasn't going to turn down because yeah. some people might be upset about me talking to him. Um, mm. Like, you, I firmly believe you can't tell the full story without hearing the whole story. Um, and that involves talking to people on both sides. Um, and uh, he was very friendly, uh, both in the lead-up to the meeting, like, via, via WhatsApp, um, and then when I met him uh, in the flesh, like he's a very charismatic guy, um, and yeah, he was he was he was likable. I'd be lying if I said he wasn't likable. Like he had a lot of energy. He was like obviously an entertainer, but um, there was like a like sort of a, an underlying um, not a, like a power struggle, but sort of me trying to to breach the, sh- the subject of politics and, and him trying to constantly steer it back to football and, and me not being entirely sure whether he was doing it to avoid, um, to avoid talking about the politics or just because he was football mad. And I think the answer is both. Um, like he, he loves football. Um, that was clear to see. Um, and it was a really interesting, engaging conversation. Like he did, he did, uh, you know, say, I'm not gonna. I'm not going to um, deny that I support my brother's legacy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, you know, that he was. I can't remember exact words, but essentially for the revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said it would be silly of him to say that he wasn't. Um, but yeah, I then had some interesting conversations later in that trip about that meeting with Adelis, um, where somebody who knows Adelis very well um, through football um, said he knows his brother fucked up. Um, now, he's, he was never going to admit that to me kind of thing. Right. Um, but I found that really interesting uh, because it was somebody that was... Somebody who I know knows Adelis really well, knows football very well, has been around the game for many, many years. So um, I can't, can't question his, his insight on that. And it was very, very interesting to hear. 
Yeah, it's, it's definitely a, a, an interesting person to meet and have a conversation with about football anyway. <laughs> so the, one of the other things that stood out to me and when I'm reading this, I, I'd heard this mentioned before, but the other big sport in Venezuela is baseball. And yeah. I, I'm curious to how that came about. Is it American, American influence with, with companies there? Or is it, um, how did baseball become sort of a big spectacle in Venezuela, but not really anywhere else, in, at least in South America? I know Central American baseball is popular, but how did it get big in Venezuela? Um, yeah, so baseball's um, traditional place in, in Venezuelan society uh, is a very core pillar of, of Venezuela, what it is to be Venezuelan. Um, and that, as far as my understanding is, somebody who doesn't follow baseball in the slightest doesn't really have any real interest in baseball. But from um, my it's research and the conversation... It's, it's rubbish. There's no point in having any interest. <laughs> <laughs> from my from my conversations um, with people in the research, because, you know, it's, it's, it's a very, very important part of the Venezuelan history and tradition. Mm. I mean, it has a place in the book, albeit minor, because mm. I couldn't uh, explain the importance of football's rise without setting the backstory of it really was the poor relative of, of baseball in terms of its place in the, you know, the people's hearts. And yeah, so a lot of it is traditionally down to the, historically positive um, relationship between Venezuela and the US in a business sense. Um, obviously oil uh, being at the heart of that and an American industry um, companies like Shell having a, a large presence in the country. Um, a lot of the workers were American and that's where the companies put their money. They, they put their money into, into uh, creating sports and sports facilities that their workers were going to want to, to take part in. Um, and that was a, a big factor behind the, the popularity of baseball in the country. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the, that's where the money went. Like you had then, as football developed, it, it really became a situation where baseball was played by the locals because it had taken hold. Um, and football was played by the, the foreigners. You had um, settler communities from like Italy, from Spain, uh, from Portugal, um, who obviously were were footballers, um, like it being the the predominant game in Europe, and they in their com in their small communities base themselves around a football club. The you know the Italian businesses would support the Italian team, like Deportivo Italia, mm -hmm. now called um, Deportivo Patari. Um, and I'll have to double check; I've not made a mistake there. Um, and uh, other teams like. Um, Deportivo uh, Portuguese, uh, CD Portuguese, um, and Deportivo Galicia, for example, um, and that's that's sort of how football began. Um, the first, not when it very first began, because the very first game in of football in Venezuela um, far precedes that and was actually introduced by a Welsh guy. Um, <laughs> but football taking a hold uh, really became. Um, prominent with with European settler communities um, and that sort of happened from the 50s onwards um, but football had been played for like 60 years or so prior but like you know didn't touch the surface. It's probably a bit of an uh, overused phrase but would you say Venezuela are going through a bit of a, a golden generation and that coincides with a, a difficult time economically and politically uh, why do you think it is that the the not only football at the amateur and recreational level is taking off and an interest in it, but the national team and the under-20s, and they've done really well over the last decade. So why do you think the two, I guess, how would you, 
why would you say it's worked and during such difficult times? Why do you think the football team has done so well and football's flourished during, during this time? Yeah, so it was answering that question, um, wanting to answer that question and wanting to, to show what I thought the answer was, was one of the, my main inspirations for the book. Mm. Um, and I, I think particularly where the, um, the national team has such a strong, uh, such a right way of wording it, such a, a, a potential for good, a force for good in the country, such a, a strong um, unifying factor. Um, I think that really comes down to the fact that Venezuela um, for a long time has only s sort of had one global narrative um, and, and that is one of politics and oil. And football gives, I think, a, a chance for positive representation um, in the eyes of the world on a, on a scale that nothing else really offers. Um, and I think that's why football, one of the main reasons why football, especially the international team, um, has become so so popular because it gives the country, it gives the people of the country the chance of positive representation in, in the eyes of the world. I think only the Olympics comes close to, to matching that. Um, and that has a double importance in Venezuela because um, they, they crave that positive representation because in, in general, the world or people in the world have a, a dim view of Venezuela because it's been distilled into just the, the conversation on politics and like the economic crisis, for example, mm -hmm. not many positive stories are told of Venezuela and, and football being the all invasive entity that it is um, for Venezuela to qualify for a world cup. Like that's a positive expression of Venezuela transmitted into the billions of homes worldwide. Um, and I definitely think that's one of the major driving factors between the, the growth and popularity of the sport. And there was a quote I loved it. It was along the lines of what you're talking about from uh, Richard Paez, and it was, "We are socially and morally impover impoverished, treated as refugees and displaced people around the world. Yet Lavino Tinto is synonymous with joy." And I thought, if that doesn't sum football up anywhere in the world, that's a remarkable statement to make. And I think that that's, as you just mentioned, that's what the country would want to be represented by. Right? Is that there's still I get this great feeling of hope after reading that book and it's a lot of that is tied to football, I think, culturally. Yeah. And pa Paez, um, he, he knew that and he knew that it was important and he, he was the national team manager from 2001 to 2007. Mm -hmm. um, so very early on in um, the 21st century Venezuela, basically, um, you know, there's, the, there's like a before and after the, the election of Hugo Chavez and, um, you know, Richard Paez was manager for the, the early years of that. Um, and it was interesting because at that time, um, towards the end of his, his tenure, he resigned a few months after the Copa America. Um, you know, Venezuela hosted that tournament for the, for the first time in its history in 2007. And um, going back to like football and politics um, overlapping, hosting an international tournament like that is always going to... Um, have uh, reason to be politically hijacked or used to the political party's benefit. Um, and that's not unique to football and it's not unique to Venezuela or South America. We see it with the Olympics, we see it with World Cups. Yeah. Um, and um, Paez knew that uh, to improve the image of, of Venezuelan football, 
um, in the, the build-up to Copa America, really starting when he first took over in 2001, like it had to become more global. Uh, Venezuela had to be seen in the eyes of the football world. Like all of their um, all of their games, the vast ninety nine percent of their games were against South American opposition. Um, they didn't play. Um, you know, they didn't play. Sorry, they didn't play um, in uh, Europe uh, very much at all. Um, and he knew that it was important to get them playing games in Europe um, so they could be seen more and so the players could get the opportunity to play. The first Venezuelan football player to play in Europe um, at senior level didn't happen until 1991 with Stalin Rivas um, and he was one of the best Venezuelan uh, players of all time and his stay in Europe was very, very short-lived and a big part of that is because of the perception that there was of, of Venezuelan footballers because internationally their their reputation was non-existent. They they didn't win uh, a game in the Copa America for 40 years between 1967 and 2007. Um, they they regularly were on the wrong side of very heavy defeats. Like they got beaten 7-1 by Bolivia in, in 1993. Um, and yeah, Richard Pais knew it was important, um, not just for the growth of football um, and the footballers as individuals, but also for the country, uh, football being a big expression to have a, a greater sense of positivity to it, to change the the way that Venezuela played football from very defensive and damage limitation to having a go and being positive and expressive, um, that also play, played into it. And he even today has released a video with Venezuela playing Colombia uh, later this evening about the responsibility that the players have to, um, you know, not just represent the football team and themselves, but also... Um, of every Venezuelan in the eyes of the world. Do you think that there's been a conscious effort to, I know we talked earlier about the export of players, do you think that that is a strategic play as well to get players out into the world to enhance the image, not only improve the players of course, but enhance the image of Venezuelan football so people are more aware of it, they are more aware that Venezuela have got quality to offer. I know Uruguay had a similar strategy where they wanted to get players out of the country as quickly as possible, especially the better players, so they would improve but also to enhance the reputation. Is that something that you see as a, a strategy from the FVF, the Federation, or do, do you think that it's maybe just by chance that that's just the nature of global globalization in football um i i if there was credit to be given for the for like the export strategy like i it isn't for the fef <laughs> um it it will be down to um the league and then again a lot of people aren't won't be a fan of me giving the league any credit but um it certainly isn't like a strategy from the federation it's a strategy yeah. within venezuelan football mm. venezuela people that want good for for Venezuelan football want the exports to increase um, and more so they want the exportation to increase direct to Europe rather than, um, you know, instead of losing their best players to other South American countries um, or even to MLS, they, they want to be able to export them straight to Europe. They want Venezuelan football to have more value. A lot of their talent is, is criminally undervalued. The, a player just as good at 17 that is Brazilian will go for a lot more than a Venezuelan of the same age and same quality will. But that's because Brazil have a well-earned reputation over years that, that Venezuela doesn't have. Um, so the, the exporting talent thing uh, is something that the Liga Futve, the organisation that has been running the league since 2017, are very proud of. Um, I think they exported 
20, either 27 or 29 players in January. Mm. Um, and uh, a lot went to Europe. Um, Yangel Herrera is, um, in, in modern Venezuelan football in like the past few years, is like their, their flagship um, exportation. Is, because is, is he at City? Is he at Man City? Yeah, yeah. So it was 2000, 2017. He went direct from Atletico Venezuela to Manchester City. Um, he was immediately sent out on loan to New York City. Um, and then he spent time on loan season before last at Huesca in Spain. Um, and now he's at Granada uh, alongside Darwin Machis, another Venezuelan, and, and doing really well. And he's believed to be the next, um, the captain of the national team. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's interesting to see, and you've got obviously Ron Don is a well-known name, and he's he's in China at the moment. But especially as we mentioned earlier, the MLS side of things as well, that's uh, very apparent. Not only in Venezuela but South America, the exports coming up to the states right now is is unbelievable. So it's definitely a, a pool of talent that scouts are now aware of and going after. It seems. Yeah, and it, it's 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 really good. To- to see because it's deserved and there's a lot of talent there um but it i think going forward um as good as it is that players are being exported um they are being exported young um which is is fine but it means that they're then they're not that their development happens very quickly Mm. um and it's sort of hollowing out the league a bit because they're they have a rule in, in the Venezuelan league, um, the, the juvenile rule uh, that was introduced in 2007. Um, Richard Pius said that it was like his idea um, that every lineup must contain at least one under 20 or one under 19. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the book, I describe it as under 20 because it's, it's um, more often than not the case, but they actually tie it to the, the next like youth championship mm-hmm. Um to, to help them best. Sometimes it's under under 19, sometimes it's under 20. But in general, at least one under 20 in every lineup. And if he's taken off, it must be for another player of the same um, age bracket. And that's that's really helped develop the youth talent and its measure is, is easy to see. It's definitely had an effect. Um, but then a lot of the players are then being sold um, at a young age. Um, and it, it's sort of like leaving out a it's hollowing out the middle of the league um, because the best talent is going at a young age. Um, But what's important is that it goes for the right price. And at the moment, I think it's, you know, for anyone that plays football manager, like historically, you always, like used to be Scandinavia. If you want to achieve your player, you go to Scandinavia because the Mm -hmm. players are cheap. Like at the moment, like Venezuela, you can pick up bargains if you're willing to take the risk because there's still a perception that Venezuelan, there's still a weight on the shoulders of Venezuelan football players that, that sort of, they're still still not viewed with the same um, excitement or they don't have the same trust put on them that players of other South American countries get. Yeah, interesting to see that culture, the, the perception swing, you know, whether it's, uh, it enhances over the next decade as the team improves and younger exports to keep improving. I'm sure that that mentality will change, whether that's, a player like Herrera or like someone that is like the marquee player that is like now a global superstar all of a sudden that's like but I guess that just takes time right it just takes time to build that reputation yeah definitely and like there was just even yesterday there was um a a good move from the Venezuelan league directly to Europe Mm -hmm. um de Santis was signed to a five-year deal at Boa Vista uh in Portugal 
Um, some reports are saying that he's going to play first team football and other reports from like trusted sources are saying that he's going to play, he's still only 18, uh, that he's going to be playing with like the B team slash the youth team. Um, but like a five-year deal is, is huge. Um, that's a, it's a big sign, a big show of trust in the player. Um, but yeah, that, that's another player that hasn't actually played that many minutes of football in the Venezuelan league either. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was less than, he had like less than 500 minutes for Caracas before he's gone to, to Portugal. Um, but yeah, in this, in these call-ups for the World Cup qualifiers that are, you know, started yesterday and continue for the next four or five days, um, Venezuela are the only country in South America um, who don't have a single domestic-based player in their national selection at the moment. Yeah, I mean, that's mad. That must be hard for like a, a continuity standpoint as well, just like for like training and like just to get everyone back in for international duty is a, a, a different challenge as well, I suppose. Yeah, and it that that's um that's been one of like the the sub stories to this World Cup qualifier, like players not making it to not just Venezuela, but making it to their South American um, you know, place of best to represent their country. Like Rondon was prevented from leaving China. So Venezuela without their leading goal scorer of all time for their game against Colombia tonight and Paraguay in a few days. Um their their centre back, who's like one of my favourite players, I think he's their best centre back, Jordan Osorio. He's just signed for Parma um, and he wasn't able to report for international duty. Um, and there were, you know, there were other players like, a, I think there's seven players in MLS mm-hmm. uh, that were called up to the squad and, you know, um, not all of them made it to the national squad. They were being held back by their clubs. Um, so that, that's, you know, that's because of COVID and the global pandemic. But yeah, it, I, it's one of the questions that I posed. Um, I have... On the Football English account that I run on Twitter, uh, we have a regular feature called The Secret Venezuelan Footballer. Um, and it's the same same player that I interview every fortnight to, to like provide sort of like an honest insight into what's going on in Venezuelan football. It allows the player to talk with anonymity for, you know, his own security and a bit of um, extra flexibility on what he can say. And one of the questions I put to him was, um, you know, given the circumstances, do you think the coach could have called on some Venezuelan players playing their football in Venezuela. Um, and he said, you know, the coach has got to to pick the players that are playing at the highest level. Um, and, you know, that is players playing outside of Venezuela. But that there's lots of young talent in Venezuela that are doing really well. If you look at Caracas and Estudiantes de Mededa's performances in the Copa Libertadores since it resumed um, just under a month ago, there's been some really strong performances. And a lot of that, uh, a lot of that success has been built on uh, young players forming the spines of both clubs, and the book itself is is chock full of of great like insight into Venezuelan football. For anyone that's going to read it, it's just it covers everything in depth from the national team all the way down to even grassroots type stuff and women's football. It's very in depth. So before I let you go, I want I want to cover the other part of the book, which is like it serves as a bit of an adventure book. Like if you're reading this, it's like. You just don't know what's going to happen next. So you rock up at the airport. You've got a broken arm. I think you broke you broke your arm with your spiral bone, was it? Yeah, yeah, spiral fracture in my in my forearm from my wrist to my elbow. <laughs> so, so you start at the airport without going into too many spoilers. But this whole, uh, you, I think we were there for two weeks. We were there for about fifteen days, sixteen days total. Yeah, 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 fifteen days. Yeah. So, so it's a whirlwind of of getting all this uh, information and interviews and traveling to matches and. 
what was your thought when you landed? Was there any moment where you were just like, oh shit, what am I doing? Like, this is mental because not many people do what you did. You could have done a lot of this from like the internet and over the phone and like you went into yeah. You went into the trenches and actually did it. So was there a moment like, I, I thought when you were at the airport, I thought, oh, he's been pulled into security here. This, he must be thinking like, oh shit, what am I doing? <laughs> yeah, when I, when, I first got, when I first got pulled in by the, the customs officials, I, I, was, I was calm because I was like half expecting it to happen. Mm. Um, so it wasn't a surprise when it did, but also I was prepared for it. Like I... I, um, without spoiling too much of what happened in the book, like I had all the paperwork I needed. Um, so what then happened to happen was, um, again, like some people will say, oh, you're naive because of course it was going to happen. It's Venezuela. Um, but like, I wasn't naive because I knew the possibility was there to happen and it did happen. Mm -hmm. Um, which, you know, the fact that it was going to happen allowed me to stay calm, but then there was just some, those, those first, six seven hours in venezuela was just it was ridiculous and when i when i went to bed that night at like you know i think it was about 2 a.m before i got to sleep um and yeah i was just not just physically tired but like mentally exhausted um from from the journey from england and then what happened when i was at the airport and then again without spoiling what happened in the book like you know we went straight for food um, and then what happened in, again, without spoiling what happened in the, the bar happened. And yeah. I was just, I couldn't even be bothered to shower, which I then regretted <laughs> this morning, as you know. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, that, that, that first night was definitely like, why am I here? Why am, why am I doing this? And then the only other time it, it really happened was, um, yeah, when I was driving over the Andes and that episode happened as well. That was, um, yeah, that was like, oh this is this is happening is it great <laughs> um, it was surreal but then the, the whole i think the one thing that thre that threatened to massively hamper the entire project was something that could have happened anywhere in the world um and that was me losing my phone in a nightclub <laughs> yeah, you, you losing your phone and you were in some pretty uh interesting circumstances it was a halloween party and <laughs> i won't spoil the story because anyone that reads this is absolutely brilliant but i think that's when you lost your phone wasn't it halloween party yeah in a nightclub <laughs> in venezuela like many people probably don't think that happens um dressed up as uh, i don't mind saying this dressed up as terry butcher yeah, yeah. um <laughs> and I had no pockets like I was in an England kit so I uh, also wasn't going to go out without my phone um so I just had my phone like in my underwear um and at some point it fell out uh my phone and um <laughs> I, <laughs> I I don't know how long it I, I don't know how long I'd been without my phone when I realized but I was just absolutely horrified oh, and I just immediately thought well, I've lost it. Like, I'm not getting it back. Like, I've lost it. And I very, very quickly, like, resigned myself to the fact that I wasn't getting it back. And the worst thing about it was I'd been, like, recording all the interviews on my phone. Um, I'd been making all my notes on my phone. Um, I Obviously, I had my laptop with me as well. Um, but, like, the way everything went, like, my phone was my... my it was everything. My note-taker, recording the interviews. And, obviously, every night I backed every everything up to my laptop but like sometimes the internet signal was not strong enough or right. i'd wake up in the morning and the backup hadn't completed and i just wasn't sure 
how much was going to be backed up if I didn't find my phone. Um, fortunately, I got my phone back and I wrote the book. So, <laughs> but yeah, it was it was great. It's one of those moments I was reading it and even my stomach sank because I've lost my phone before and it's just and I didn't have anywhere near the amount of work that you've just been on this crazy trip to get all this yeah. information and my stomach just went like oh I could yeah. I can't imagine how you felt and on top of that it was right you, towards the end of the trip as well <laughs> yeah yeah you said I think it was like a couple of days before you left and then yeah. on top of that you get called up onto the stage for a dance-off or like a, a dance competition yeah it was amazing honestly that night um I like I was already I've always wanted to write a book um but I was never gonna I was never gonna force the issue I, I've said this time and time again um when people ask like why I wrote the book or am I gonna write another book and mm. um yeah I've always wanted to write a book but I was never just gonna like sit down and brainstorm ideas and think yeah I like this one I'll go with this like it had to happen organically mm. like an idea had to come to me and take a hold and you now I've had ideas for books before and I normally like you know, I sit on them for a few weeks and if after a few weeks I it's still there, then I'll go with it. And that's never happened before. It would always pass. This didn't pass and it became an obsession and I thought things would slow down when I'd finished writing the book and but no, like I, I'm still like completely uh swamped in Venezuelan football. I, I use all my free time to in one way or another be involved in it. But um yeah writing writing the book was one dream that I was living out in that moment and then the another dream that I've always had was to like have the opportunity to to rap on stage like I always fancied myself as a rapper when I was a kid um and I've, it's always like one of those things that like oh, I'm probably too old now um, but like, like, I'm 26 now I was 25 at the time but like you know it's like football like if you've not made it by 19 like you're not making it and like you know I'm 25 my rap career has not started yet so it probably won't but you, um, and you then could be big in Venezuelan football and Venezuelan hip-hop though yeah <laughs> so I got called on called on stage for this dance-off to win an iPhone ironically <laughs> um and uh yeah I I passed the first round of the dance-off uh, probably through through sympathy um, and then I found myself in the final three to win uh, to win an iPhone 12 in, in a nightclub in Venezuela. I'm, I'm repeating this so people know it happened. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. And yeah, the guy was like, so pick your song, like what song are you going to dance to? And I, I was like, no, nah, I'm, I'm not going to dance. <laughs> like, I'm just thinking, I'm not picking a song. I'm not picking a song. And just, I don't know how, I, no prior thought. I just grabbed a mic off of him um, and and yeah, sang one of my favorite Eminem freestyle verses to like a packed Venezuelan nightclub. I'm wish, pretty sure I they wish, did. I wish there was a video of this. There, there should be a video of you doing this somewhere. Uh -huh. It sounds like something out of a film. Like it's ridiculous. <laughs> it was amazing. Uh, and some of my favorite moments in Venezuela, and I'm happy that this is the case, but like some of my favorite moments in Venezuela just had absolutely nothing to do with football. Yeah. Um, and like it's, it's the basis of one of the chapters in the book. But like there's just one night where we go back to Kevin's um, flat with a few of his friends. Mm. Um, we just like sit around playing card games and drinking um, after being at a football game. And um, yeah, this girl, I won't ruin it, but like this girl starts, as you know, starts telling this incredible story. Mm. Um, and it, yeah, it was just those like normal human things, like five of us never been in a group together before we'll never meet in that same group again like sharing stories that you just think you'd never hear um and i'm like that those moments even where they had little to do with football those moments to me justify going to venezuela for this book 
Mm. Um, you know, like you said, I could have written that book from home. I wouldn't have because it's not something I do, but like I could have written that book from home, but it's things like that that I would have missed. And I think it's things like that, that, that give the, give the book character. Well, and even to bring it full circle to the beginning of the conversation about the economy and money and the misconceptions, I believe you, you were talking to uh, Roberto that was kind of the epitome of like what I would say a hustler is where he had a clothing line and like, he, I think you would mention to him about something to do with money and he kind of pulled you up like, well, no, that's not the case for everybody, you know, and I, that's kind of a, you have to be there. You had to go and meet him and like see what he was about and see that like he was ho- doing his thing, hustling clothes and all the rest of it. Like you have to go and experience that. And like, that's like, as you said, you can't make those things up over a phone call with someone because they're going to be much more, straight and probably formal with you than if you were in person with them and like actually living him selling hats or merchandise for the uh the barra right so that was it was really yeah all right man so so before we wrap up when can people get hold of the book so stateside um is available in the states already yeah so it's um at the moment it's still just online uh but you can buy on amazon um, albeit you need to buy it on Amazon UK, okay. uh, amazon.co.uk. It's sort of available in the UK marketplace. So if you go on amazon.com, you, you, I think it's there, but you can't buy it. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you go on amazon.co.uk, like I personally ship the books from home, um, whether you buy it through Amazon or whether you buy it through my own website. Yeah. Um, it's being published as an ebook, uh, hopefully in time for Christmas. But at the moment, it's just a physical, uh, physical book. And then it's, I've actually, as of this week, um, in talks to the publisher for it to be published in Spanish in the new year. Um, it's already being translated into Spanish by Kevin, um, which is which is great because he was there for so much of it. Um, it's also really important to me, and I know to Venezuelan football, that the book's being translated by a Venezuelan. Um, you know, in the same way American English is, is different from England English, as you know. Um, you know, Venezuela has its own its own way with his words um and i'm really pleased that the publisher um has accepted that um because i know one of the chapters of my book uh, the ill-fated final um that is featuring in a uh, like an anthology of football writing from around the world which is being published next year um in spanish and i provided kevin's translation of that chapter and i know that they've like sort of edited it into like Spanish Spanish yeah. um, which is understandable because it's for a Spanish audience but like you know it has lost that Venezuelan essence so I'm really pleased that the Spanish publisher um, is is going with the Venezuelan Spanish translation of it. Well it seems Venezuelans are really eager to tell their own story as well with their own their own uh, spin on it and their own language on it as you said because there is a lot lost in translation between english and spanish between different continents and countries so that's one thing that i definitely took from the book venezuelans seem very passionate about getting their story out there and getting it told which i mean yeah the book does it remarkably so and uh, where can people get with you on uh, social media so you said you're running a, a footvay english account and also the your own personal accounts what are the handles for those uh, my personal account is the false libero. Um, so the false F A L S E libero L I B E R O. And then yeah, foot Bay English is an account I've set up since finishing the book, um, which is dedicated to, to Venezuelan football in English. Um, and I, uh, there's also a page for the book on Instagram, which is just the name of the book, red wine and arepas. And then the subtitle of the book is how football is becoming Venezuela's religion. 
Brilliant. All right, cool. So we well, appreciate you coming on the show. And before I uh, let you go, is there a place that you can pick up an arepa in England? Have you found like a fix for that yet? Or <laughs> get your own yeah, shop yeah. maybe? <laughs> yeah, so um, fortunately, so another reason why I my interest in Venezuela began is my wife. Um, we've been together since 2012. Mm -hmm. um, her friend growing up uh, is, is from Venezuela, a girl called Alex. Um, so yeah, my wife was making me arepas long before this book. Uh, so I get my fix at home. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm lucky enough to live in London. There's a few good Venezuelan arepa bars in London. They actually won uh, at the beginning of the year. One of the arepa bars won the in the food awards best lunchtime eatery in London. So hey, I, I, <laughs> apparently I, I, is the, the food craze of this year. <laughs> well, and I know you don't believe in fate, but it all seems a little too uh, coincidental to me, mate, that all of this has uh, fallen together for you. <laughs> yeah. Now we just need Venezuela to qualify for the World Cup. Yeah, that'll be amazing to see. Well, listen, Jordan, it was brilliant you having me on the show, mate. I really appreciate you coming on. It was, uh, it was a great book, and everyone should go pick it up. And appreciate you coming on. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. No worries. That's it. It's full time. The end of today's show. I want to thank everyone for tuning in and big shout out to Jordan for coming on. We're going to be back on Tuesday where myself and Tom will do the weekly roundup. And in the meantime, a healthy obsession.soccer for everything that's going on in the world of football culture. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll see you all again soon. Cheers.